Welcome to uh, a new episode of Syndrome. My name is Ben Wheeler and uh, I am going to be uh, talking to a, a new guest today about their film choices and trying to understand uh, how those film choices fit into their personality and give insights into who they are. Um, my guest today is uh, Tejaswini Apte Ram, who uh, is someone I have met fairly recently. Uh, hi, Tejaswini. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Um, uh, just about holding up in the lockdown, but all right. Right, yeah, it's getting uh, it's getting on now. How, it's been like two months, I think. Yes, a bit more than two months, but it's all right with the help of books and music and films, we can get by, right? Exactly, exactly. Where would we be without these things? Which r- reminds me actually of um, something that I that I heard a lot from the UK during their lockdown, which of course was 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 going on for an incredibly long time, about how um, artists, musicians, writers, etc., were encouraged to get second jobs, um, as if their job wasn't an actual job, and of course the uh the kind of counterpoint to that would be well what's everyone doing in lockdown to keep themselves sane they're turning to art in its various forms as you've just just stated yes i read that article and i was also a bit flummoxed by it and i thought surely the people who sought up that scheme they must be reading books and listening to music and watching movies so what on earth are they thinking about as if i mean they were treating it as if it's not an essential job to be done creating art Right, that was the phrase, wasn't it? At the the essential workers, um, yeah. Well, well, we've got we've gotten straight into it uh, with some biting social commentary. Uh, but let's just back, backtrack a second. Uh, and can I ask you to give us a, a brief introduction um, to the viewers and audiences, and then we'll get into our our, our discussions of uh, of film. Okay, my name is Tejaswini Apte Ram. I'm from Bombay, now called Mumbai. Um, and I have been traveling the world over the last uh, 20 years with my husband. This is our ninth or maybe 10th country in Fiji. I've lost count. Um, we spend a year or two in each country. And I'm a writer by profession. I started off as a journalist and then I was an environmental researcher and writer. And then I went into fiction. And my last book was a collection of short stories. And actually, after that, I did uh, I co-wrote um, a children's book uh, with an environmental theme, and I've just finished writing my first novel. So that's what I do. That's my profession. Fantastic! You've just you've just finished writing your first novel. Yes, I'm waiting to hear back from the publisher on that. Okay, well, um, f- thanks for that introduction. Uh, I-, I think we'll get straight into the uh, to the questions now, uh, and we'll start off by um, asking you why you like uh, why you like movies. As someone who's who's perhaps preferred medium is is uh, the written word and prose or poetry. Um, what what do you find rewarding about films and watching films? Um, For me, films are all about escapism and entertainment. And um, it's been like that ever since I was a child. 
Uh, when I want serious stuff, thought-provoking stuff, I definitely turn to books. Um, I don't like escapist literature. I like well-written, serious, thought-provoking literature. But when it comes to films, I think the way I started off life as a cinema watcher, that's the way it's um, carried on. Um, and you have to place this, I think, in the context of 1970s, 1980s India, when it was literally a, a barren visual landscape. Um, there was no visual entertainment at all, apart from the star power and the glamour and the escapism of films. Um, there was no color television till 1982. Um, there was... and the. They, they started, they lifted the import restrictions in 1982 so that a few people could import color TVs to watch the Asian games that were going to be held in Delhi. Um, but before that, it was all black and white TV just for a few hours every evening and no programming for children at all, apart from three half an hour programs per week in black and white. And each of those three were, they were all in three different languages. So there was one program in Hindi one half an hour program in Marathi and one in Gujarati. Now, I was lucky enough to know two of the languages, so I could watch two of the programs. Um, and you can understand my desperation for visual entertainment when I tell you that I also watched the third program, which was in Gujarati, though I couldn't understand a word. It was just nice to have something to look at, to see other children on screen, to see whatever picture books they were using. Um, so that was it. Um, and so the only other visual entertainment was films. Um, anything to take you out of your whatever dreary day-to-day -day life, it was cinema. And then we would pour over film magazines and cut out the photos of the stars. It all looked so colorful and larger than life. Um, we would make these, um, we would make our own film um, by cutting out pictures from the film magazines and sticking them together in a roll. Then rolling it up and then you we would roll it out like um, uh, frames of a film and watch it. Right. Wow, that's awesome, man. Like a, like a very early creative uh, energy that you had. Um, um, yeah, it sounds like a, a lot like um, the my favorite one of my favorite French directors, Michel Gondry, who used to just take anything that he could uh, and use it to make what he what he thought films could and would and should be. And then uh, you sort of see that reflected, that sort of childlike simplicity reflected in some of his later films. Once he's got like a huge film crew uh, behind him, uh, but that that's thanks for that. That's that's a really interesting um, sort of introduction to to why you like films a sort of um, a differentiation perhaps between films and literature in which in which films can be more more playful and, and, and more escapist perhaps and not so serious uh, I'm not sure maybe we need to come back to that and, and a very interesting kind of um, uh, insight into uh, India in the 70s and 80s which is uh, I, I guess the time when from the little I know about it, Bollywood was really sort of um, becoming a thing. So uh, the the fifties and sixties, I think, were, were were there was a more socially kind of realist cinema going on with the with the cinema of Satyat Ray and that sort of thing. And then from the perhaps sixties, seventies, and eighties, 
Bollywood sort of kicked off. Would that be fair, or am I? I'm probably oversimplifying, but but is that that? Um... I don't think so. I think um, what what we call masala films, Bollywood films, masala is in sp- every, all the spices go in and make something tangy and delicious and fun and playful. That's been going on since the days of the silent films in India. Um, and they're within what we call uh, Bollywood now. Um, there are different genres within Bollywood as well. So you have the action films, you have the more intellectual films, you have the patriotic films, the social realist films, and the romances, the light, frothy romances. I think these, all these, have always been there. Um, at different, in, during different eras, um, different trends um, came into play more than others, but the others never really went away. So. Um, during the silent era, very popular were uh, mythological films uh, where people were fascinated to see their own gods and goddesses come alive on screen. Um, these were very, very popular. Uh, also, Arabian night style action films were very popular, just fantasy adventure. Um, and then, of course, these were the homegrown mm. films. And then, of course, the Hollywood films were very popular um, with, with the action and the romance. And then um, around pre-independence and post-independence, you had quite a bit of social realism and uh, patriotic films. Um, and But from the 40s, 50s, 60s onwards, romance and masala films were very much uh, there. It was not only in the 70s and 80s that it came up, not at all. Okay, excellent. Well, I'm, 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 I'm loving this education. I've, I, as I've said to you, uh, before quite I've only really been introduced to um, Indian cinema as a, as a concept um, in in maybe the last six months since moving to Fiji certainly and and I've been really taking an interest in the last six months it's it's a terrible blind spot on my global film knowledge which I'm trying to remedy and you are helping me immensely so thanks very much just to give that a little bit more historical context if you want the first the very the very first so the very first screening in um, india the very first film that was ever screened was in 1896 and it was just 6 months after the lumiere brothers had screened their first show in paris so film came to india very quickly within 6 months of it appearing in europe and um, after that, Indian filmmakers started making documentaries and newsreels pretty soon. I think 1901 or thereabouts was the first Indian newsreel. And it was interesting. It was about um, an Indian student who had been um, at Cambridge University and he had received a maths degree and he was returning back to India with full honors. And uh, the first Indian newsreel was made about this Indian student coming back from Cambridge. And after that, there were many. There were even foreign um, uh, filmmakers coming to make documentaries about Indian life, about this, the, what would be exotic for Westerners to see, like the bazaars and the monuments and so on. And there were Indian filmmakers as well, documenting things like the Delhi Darbar of, of King George in 1911. Um, and the ve- but so far till then nobody had made a feature film in India, even though Hollywood silent films were being shown. Um, and the very first feature film, as in films which were not just a camera placed in front of a stage to film a play, differentiating that a feature film made specifically with a film script that was in 1912. 
Um, so very, very early on. And that film, in fact, was never released, even though that was the first film, because it was advertised, but um, the developing was faulty. And even though that was the first film, the honors, actual honors for the first film go to a film called Raja Harish Chandra in 1913. And that just took um, the place by storm. People were just amazed to see, it was a mythological, so people were amazed to see their gods and goddesses literally come alive on screen. And the same filmmaker, Dada Saheb Falke, um, he's now known as the father of Indian cinema. He went on to make some amazing mythologicals. And in 1917, he made a film called Lanka Dahan, which is billed now by film historians as India's first box office hit. It ran for months and months and months, and people used to come from the rural interiors on their bullock carts. It would be like a pilgrimage to go and see this film, and they would almost worship uh, the screen because they could see the gods coming to life. So that's, that's the birth of Indian cinema. Yeah, just to give that context that is a fantastic context thank you very much man i i, uh, I had no idea and, and uh i'm a little i'm a little surprised um that that just six months after after the lumiere screening as as you say in 1890 in 1895 the lumiere's and, and in 1896 uh, india's first screening was held i'm fascinated by by uh, much of that detail i i know that um a lot of early cinema all around the world um was kind of um like travelogues right it, it was it wasn't used to tell stories necessarily but to show as you as you describe exotic foreign lands um but uh yeah it, it, that's great to know how how quickly um a narrative and feature kind of film industry um developed within uh within india and and I love the idea of the kind of the, the, the mythological narratives being a huge part of that. So thanks. Thanks very much for that, that historical input. That's fascinating. Um, perhaps now um, we could talk more about your very early memories of uh, either, either the cinema as an institution, as a place or, or films um, in, in uh, particular films. So my very earliest memory of watching a film is in the theater and me sobbing, really sobbing and traumatized um, because it, there was a scene of a man whipping an elephant with a chain or a thick rope or something. It was a film called Hathi Mere Sathi, which is, um, translates to my elephant is my friend or my companion. And there was this amazing friendship between the hero and the elephant through the film. And at some point, the hero feels the elephant has betrayed him because the elephant almost has human-like characteristics. So he feels the elephant has betrayed him. He starts whipping him. Of course, there's a happy ending to it all. But this was very traumatic. And I'd, it probably wouldn't get made today because just because of the... It was almost like animal cruelty, even though there's a happy ending at the end of it and the elephant is exonerated. And another early memory, I was fascinated by films right from the beginning. Another early memory, traumatic in its own way, was um, discovering at the end of a film that the chocolate bar somebody had given me to eat was still in my hand, but completely squished and melted because I was so engrossed in the film, I'd forgotten to eat it. So I had lost out on my chocolate bar. That's a very vivid memory as well. <laughs> but that, wow. that just shows you I've always been fascinated by the moving picture 
yeah, makes def- me forget everything else. Definitely. Two, two, two traumatic stories in their own way. One, one, one with, with a real emotional connection with, um, with the elephant on screen and the other, the, the, the realization of, of, of lost chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's fascinating. And, and, I, and I like the idea of, um, I like the idea of kind of tra- like trauma, you know, it, it really is a, a quite, quite a big part of the, of of my early cinematic experiences as well, um, you know, I don't. I I think one of one of my earliest memories is is going to see E. T. and that's a movie I still can't watch without experiencing all the trauma that I experienced at the time. I think both the both being overwhelmed. I think at that young age, being overwhelmed by what you're seeing, as well as the connect the emotional connection that happens in a way that 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 you have never experienced before. Yes. I think um, there were many traumatic moments for me in childhood while watching films for the simple reason that um, there, at that time and still even now, there are no children's films made in India. Mm. All the films are family films, which means that there has to be something for everyone. There's romance and there's slapstick and there's songs and poetry and music and there's terrible, terrible violence. There's a lot of fighting. Um, sometimes it it's the, it takes the form of a quite a harmless punch up at the end of the film, with the good guys and the bad guys fighting it out. But sometimes the violence is awful, mm. and um, as children we sat through it and nobody gave it a second thought. Whereas now I would not want um, children now to see that kind of thing. So a, a lot of adult. Uh, we were exposed to many, many adult situations, adult emotions, adult problems and traumas on the screen, um, which I think now with hindsight, we shouldn't have been exposed to, but that's how it was. The, these were family films. The whole family would go and see it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that, that's interesting as well. Um, I've been doing a bit of reading uh, in preparation for this and after watching uh, Sholay, which is a film we'll talk about later, but I, I believe at about that time, some some new censorship measures uh, were, were coming in uh, in Indian cinema. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. What what does interest me uh, is that um, is the idea of that swinging the other way in um, in certain American films. So I was reading uh, reading recently about Steven Spielberg's decision to CGI out the guns in E.T., going back to my earliest movie, and replace them with mobile phones, which he did for the 20th anniversary, because he thought it was too violent for children watching it. And I think that's maybe going go, swinging the other way a little bit. And, and in this same article I read, in the 30th anniversary, <laughs> he put the guns back in. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, he he decided that that was a little uh, censorious of him, perhaps, and, and maybe maybe an overreaction. But I think that that yeah, that, that that's an interesting point um, about masala films that they are so so wide ranging and all encompassing that they had a bit of everything in them. Uh, and um, yeah, I, I think I think trauma is definitely a part of some of the films that you've selected later on uh, so we'll, we'll get back to that as I said um, but but the the next the next thing I'd like to explore before we go to your specific uh, film picks is, is what your favorite um, music uh, kind of what which film has your favorite music in it because I love how much music is a part of film and and with uh, Bollywood film and masala film of course it's a huge part um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that 
Yeah, it's um, as you said, it's an integral part traditionally of of Hindi films. Um, I I usually say Hindi films rather than Bollywood because Bollywood is a relatively new term. So I've just written that down. I've just written down <laughs> Hindi, so I'm going to try and use that as well from now on. <laughs> okay, um, and and by the way, Bollywood, I, I I'm sure you know, it's it's specifically uh, cinema made in Bombay in Hindi. It's not. Yeah. It has nothing to do with um, the other regional cinemas in India, which are also very diverse and prolific. Good to know. So we're spe- so I'm so Bollywood. I'm speaking specifically of Hindi language films made by the Bombay film industry. Um, so anyway, um, Hindi films are traditionally musicals with lip-synced songs, um, not just background soundtracks. Um, and so it's really hard to choose a favorite soundtrack because there's just such a wealth of musical soundtracks to choose from. I think the best soundtracks are those which, where the songs serve the plot in some way by moving the story forward or by establishing a relationship between the characters or by developing a character uh, within the plot. Those, those are really the, the best soundtracks um, for me. And of course, the, the the music has to be combined with great lyrics. So um, the lyricists traditionally have been sort of celebrities in their own own right. They've been poets uh, who have uh, sort of twisted and turned their words depending on the situation of the story. So the same poet can write a beautiful love song and can also write um, lyrics sung by a gangster who's drunk. So this is the genius of the Hindi film lyricists. Mm. Um, and anyhow, my, my very favorite soundtrack, if I had to choose, is from a film called Tisri Manzil, uh, which translates as The Third Floor. And it's a murder mystery. It's from the 60s. And it had this amazing rock and roll soundtrack, um, which you really can't separate from, from the choreography that went with it and the star power of Shami Kapoor, who is the, the hero of that film. And he had his, he was a, a star who was very much involved in the music making himself. He was one of those stars who insisted on sitting in um, during the, uh, composi- the composing of the songs and the recording of the songs. And he had a very close relationship with the playback singer who used to uh, do all his songs, a playback singer called Muhammad Rafi. So uh, most stars usually had one playback singer who was just the right fit for them, who, who matched their personality and their speaking voice the best. And Shami Kapoor and Mohamed Rafi made this amazing um, duo where um, they just fitted, they matched each other. And so the songs um, are, are that much better for, for that excellent match between um, singer and star. And it was quite a path-breaking soundtrack at the time. In, in terms of rock, introducing rock and roll into into Hindi film music. That sounds, uh, yeah, that kind of reminds me um, a little bit of um, Quentin Tarantino's newest film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, which is a sort of a, a self-reflexive um, uh, investigation of the relationship between a, an actor and his stunt double. Uh, I, I, I'd love to see like a sort of uh, a postmodern um Hindi film in which uh, maybe a 1960s uh, actor was was his relationship with his kind of singing double was explored in a similar way. It sounds like there's there's the the links there and the connections are are kind of similar in a way. 
Yeah, you've made a great connection between the between Tarantino's film with the stunt double, and yeah, that's amazing. I never thought of that before. I loved that film. I loved the Tarantino film. Um, absolutely, because the in in a soundtrack, the singer has to embody the character that the star is playing, and being Hindi films, um, that in the traditional Hindi film, the star never left his star persona to inhabit the character completely the mm. star was always the star so the audience always knows that this is the star and this is also his character the two were never really separated and there was no attempt to separate them and so the singer had to fit both these personas had to fit the character as well as the star persona so it, it was really like being a stunt double that's a very good um, analogy Excellent. I'm glad. I'm glad. I know that you uh, you also have a, have a favorite Hollywood uh, soundtrack as well. Um, what was that? Yes, that was La La Land. Um, again, it was. Uh, you can see my um, my bias towards lip synced songs because this was a lot like a Hindi film. Really, it was. It was the each song took forward the story or or the characterization in some crucial way. And I thought it was wonderful. It was nice to see uh, Hollywood sort of go back to its musical heritage as well. I think I wish Hollywood would do that a lot more because there's there's a rich seam to be mined there. I feel definitely, definitely. I've been introducing um, introducing uh, audiences in Suva to. Um, singing in the rain very recently which is a, a huge favorite of mine um, but I also was talking to to one of my earlier guests who who also selected La La Land as one of their films about not only the the very rich um, Hollywood musical heritage that it that it mines but but the fact that it is uh, a remake and a huge homage to a French uh, new wave movie called The Umbrellas of Cherbourg um, I'm not sure if you've if you've seen that that film. No, I haven't. Ah, I, well, that that would be another of my my recommendations uh, for you then, um, if you can get hold of it. Uh, and, and it's a very famous film, so I think it, you should be able to. You will notice huge huge parallels between the storytelling, and of course, uh, for the time 1960s kind of filmmaking, it was it was as much of the French New Wave was. Uh, both reflecting a love uh, of American Hollywood cinema, but also subverting some of the tropes. So, um, yeah, I, I think you'll really enjoy that. Yeah. The other other good musicals I like are also um, sort of... Sim- I, I don't know, does Sound of Music... Is Sound of Music Hollywood or is that... Yes, it is Hollywood. That's Hollywood, not, yeah. Yeah. Yes, I love that. I love My Fair Lady. Um Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> yeah, wonderful stuff. All, all, all wonderful, yeah. I liked Mary Poppins as well. That was a huge favorite of mine. Um, Julie Ju- yes. Andrews was, was a big part of my, my childhood, I think, with Sound of Music and Mary Poppins. Yes. And um, Wizard of Oz was pretty nice too. Even though that feels a little bit dated to me now, but I, 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 th- I think it's wonderful. I don't know why Hollywood has moved away from these these sorts of um, films and I think the success of La La Land surely should have shown that the audience likes it so why not make more of it it's um, one of my frustrations with Hollywood yes definitely um, they, they they tend to hit on a they tend to get quite obsessed with formulas and trends don't they and if something doesn't sort of fit into that 
then it, it can get it can get ignored or overlooked. And I, I remember when um, when La La Land came out that uh, so it's Emma Stone who's in the film. It was Emma Watson who was offered the part, but her agent turned it down without even telling her about it. And she was kind of furious at her agent afterwards. So there's, yeah, there's this idea of like, oh, this, this genre is in, this genre isn't in and playing it safe, working with test audiences. These, these are all kind of parts of the Hollywood, the contemporary Hollywood system that, that I too find mildly frustrating. <laughs> yes, but it's strange, isn't it? That even though La La Land was a hit, that that didn't spark off a trend of its own own i wonder why because you would have thought that people if they were looking for trends people would have tried to jump a little bit onto that bandwagon but they just didn't yeah yeah you would have thought so it's an interesting point and and yeah, yeah. One, one i don't have an answer to <laughs> yeah something to think about i'm i'm try i'm racking my brains i can't think of any other musicals that have come out in the wake of of mm-hmm. that film's success I know that musical theatre is really kind of kicking off in America at the moment. So maybe it was just sort of channeled into that trend. But yeah, I'm unsure. Who knows? Mm. Of course, you always have the Disney films, which are, have been That's keeping true. that flag, that, that, you know, keeping that tradition alive. That's um, true. They've been, I love Moana and Frozen. I love those songs. They're amazing. Great. They're fantastic. But I think my, my, my favorite, and I was discussing this uh, again with a friend the other day, uh, my favorite of recent years has to be Coco. Uh, just oh, the, yes. the, the animation and the songs in that, I think, are absolutely impeccable. But Moana and Frozen, I'm, I'm, I'm big fans of those too. My friend was discussing them. She was, we, she was talking about her, her, young, her young boys uh, and saying, and kept calling them children's films. And I was like, no, 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 no they're not. <laughs> There's a little something in there for everyone. Yeah. Well, Disney, the Disney animations are really quintessentially family films. They're, there is really something in there for everyone. And again, it's, it's strange why music and song and dance has been relegated to animation and not to live action. It's really a mystery. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's it. Okay, um, let's uh, let's move on if if you're ready to talk about um, your your selection. So, we, as with every guest that I have, rather than ask for your favourite films, I've given you three different categories and uh, ask you to pick examples that reflect your 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 tastes in those categories. Um, so, I think we'll start with the physical first. What was your selection there? I had two, uh, two choices. Um, when I first read Physical in your message, I thought immediately of an action film. And so my first thought was Sholay from um, 1977, which is modeled on a Western. And that's a great action film. A um, lot of shooting and fighting and uh, violence, but a really strong story. It's not just violence for the sake of violence. It's, it's very... Um, it's well considered at what point the violence and the action comes in. Um, but the setting itself, uh, this very uh, desert-like arid landscape, a little bit surreal with the rock formations, you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, um, that itself invites um, this raw physicality, just the raw physicality of the landscape. And that invites this kind of... Uh, action-filled story to inhabit it um it's not it's not a landscape for 
any sort of tender love story. And yet, amazingly, the film does include an extremely tender love story, which is um, which doesn't come to fruition because it's because one of the characters dies. Um, spoiler. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I thought this it was beautiful in the way it combined very tender emotions with this uh, raw, violent kind of story as well. Shall I talk about my second choice or shall we talk about this first? Let's, let's, uh, we'll, we'll pause and, and, and talk a little about Sholay because it was okay. the film that uh, my friends Malcolm and Roshni selected to, to really introduce me to some of their favourite cinema that they enjoyed from their, from their childhood. Uh, and it was one of the first films that, that really sort of uh, captured my imagination. So I watched it here in Fiji about six months ago and I was struck by the... Um, the similarity to uh, to many of those Hollywood Western films, and and I love those those um, rugged landscapes that you talk about, which are hugely evocative of the Monument Valley shots of your classic John Ford westerns in America, and um, and so many other um, westerns of that era. I I loved the. Um, it reminded me a lot of of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is one of my favourite westerns, and and. Uh, like um, the, these masala films that you're describing, kind of defies generic categorization. Um, they have uh, there. There is a love story that occurs. There is a huge the the friendship between the two main characters is is just as much a part of it as as any kind of rugged masculinity or action. Um, and and it has one of my kind of one of my favorite cinematic scenes ever, which is. Um, uh, Paul Newman riding uh, riding a bicycle, this this newfangled invention <laughs> in the old west, uh, with his love interest sitting on the handlebars, and with um, raindrops keep falling on my head playing. You know, so there's this very interesting kind of musical uh, interlude in that film as well. So so I, I really enjoyed Sholay, yeah, uh, and was interested to read about. Um, how it, it was one of the first films I think that was um, uh, kind of edited and, and, and censored in this way and, and deemed to be a little bit too violent because of new restrictions that were happening at that time. So I thought that was interesting. Yes, um, I believe the last scene where the police rushes in at the end that was added in later because they, the, the censors wanted the, the law and order to prevail. They didn't want the police to be completely absent from the, the whole story. Right, right. Um, because but, but the, previously there'd been quite a violent and, gr uh, and grisly ending there. Um, yes, exactly. I, I also read, interestingly, that, that originally the, the main character who was, a, a well, the, 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 the character who, who needs to be avenged who was a policeman, was initially supposed to be an army, an ex-army person, but that was that was changed as well. And and I was also um, reading a, a bit about the the bad guy who was who was like almost a first time actor and became a huge star after that. And the fact that he was dressed in military fatigues, which sort of um, lends a very interesting, almost subtextual kind of history to that character that, that, that these articles were trying to grapple with. I don't know if, if that's anything you have an opinion on or can enlighten me about. Um, that, that's interesting. I didn't think of the bad guy wearing military fatigues. I just thought he was wearing 
that, 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 that never occurred to me. I just thought what he was wearing sort of blended into the landscape. And it, it was a bit uh, of a different look from his henchmen who are dressed more in the traditional Indian clothes. And he is in this safari suit kind of a, an outfit. But you're right, I have heard also that, that he, the, the police officer was meant to be an army officer and, then, and, and that was changed. But to give that a little bit of context in terms of censorship, the censor board was instituted in India in 1920. And so it was not a new thing in the 1970s. And just like there are trends in the industry of what to make, um, whether it's romances or, or action films, the censor board also seems to go through its own trends about what they want to cut and what they want to allow. And um, in in the 1920s, it was, uh, of course, a, a, a British initiative, uh, since the British were there till 1947. And um, I think it was not a coincidence that it, it, the year was 1920, because that was around the time when um, the independence movement was gathering ground um, more and more. And so the main idea of the censor board was to ensure that there was uh, nothing shown in the films which could be a direct or a veiled criticism of the colonial authorities. Um, and that there shouldn't be any film which shows uh, Western characters in a bad light. That those were the two main concerns at that time. And that, of course, changed along with the, the, the politics of the day. So depending on which government is in power, you'll see uh, the censor board changes proclivities depending on that. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's interesting. I mean, there's it's a fine line um, between, um, you know, just outright censorship and uh, the nuances of representation, shall we say, uh, which which um, both of which change with the the cultural and societal mores as, as, as they change. And, and it's, it's fascinating to chart those alongside the, the hierarchies of power that exist in, in, in different cultures and societies, as you say. Yes. I, in fact, in the um, late 90s, um, I did a lot of research at the censor board offices in Bombay. And um, the officer in charge at the time, she was really very open and sort of just open to, to new ideas and to, to the fact that I'd showed up uh, as, as a sort of a random researcher wanting to look at their records. Um, she was very helpful and she even allowed me, I was surprised, she even allowed me to look at um, uh, clips of films which had been censored. So the actual censored parts. So oh, they wow. had reels. She had reels of these and she said, yes, you can go and have a look and see everything that's been cut out. And I was amazed at the things that had been cut out. Um, I thought that um, at that point of time, I thought there was quite a bit of violence and um, sort of uh, suggestive uh, scenes, which which are not, um, which were quite disrespectful to the de representation of women, and so on. I thought this was there already in the films, and so I was amazed to see at how far uh, filmmakers had gone in terms of violence uh, towards women, for example, or violence in general, which had been cut out. So it was almost as if what we were seeing in the cinemas was the tip of the iceberg, and there was this whole other iceberg that had actually been cut out. And I was shocked at how far filmmakers can go in their depictions and representations. And 
for some of those, I was glad that they had been cut out. So I, I came away with a much more nuanced sense of what the sensor board was doing. Yeah, that must have been a, a, a quite quite the revelation, man. Um, that uh, to to see, yeah, it's it's just it's a fascinating insight, isn't it? I, I, to 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 see the thing, to, to to peek behind the curtain, to see the unseen, as it were, um, and and have that then inform your understanding of what is being represented. It's really interesting. I also sat in. Um in, at some screenings of uncensored films. So the first time the censors were seeing the films, I sat in as well. She allowed me to sit in. Um, and some of those discussions also were, were very revealing in that I didn't like the fact that there were bureaucrats, of course, but there was also diverse, like a cross-section of citizens that was the composition of the censor board. I didn't like, in the end, the idea that this group of people would sit in judgment on the filmmaker because the filmmaker, however well-known he was, he was waiting outside the screening room. Mm. Um, and then he would be called in. And then these people would sit in judgment of him, which I didn't, I didn't like the format of it. I understood why there needs to be a censor board. And I understood that because I'd seen what is actually cut out. And I felt some of those things definitely did need to be cut out. But also, I didn't like the format in which the whole thing was conducted, if you like. That I, I felt it should be more uh, as a discussion rather than a judgment. Right, yeah, like an, an adjudication by committee rather than a, yes, a dialogue. Yes, exactly. Right, yeah. exactly. Mm. It, it's, very, it's very interesting. Um, yeah, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually... Um, I'm not sure I might cut this out, but <laughs> I've been I've I've been asked to um, to talk about uh, censorship in film um, at uh, an Alliance Francais uh, panel discussion uh, later in the week. So so that's that's uh, that's something that I'm going to be uh, really digging into over the next couple of days uh, and trying to find more more about. So I, I love that our discussion has gone there and uh, is already sort of whetting my appetite for for an exploration of of film censorship and and what is deemed appropriate and what isn't and how how kind of different cultures come to that it, it struck me that um in many cultures across the world there is a weird um uh, a weird thing where anything sexually provocative is deemed much more inappropriate than anything physically or violently provocative um i'm not sure uh, if that's if that's anything that you've noticed in your in your studies and explorations of this subject, um, for a long time, I think the um, sexual depictions and violent depictions have they've actually always seemed very extreme to me in Hindi films, at least. A lot, there are few really good filmmakers who use it because the story demands it, and there are many others where you can see that okay, the story demands it, but it's being pushed pushed to a limit for sensationalist reasons. And um, I think the, the sort of knee-jerk liberal reaction is that censorship is bad. But from what I've seen, I think there needs to be more, that reaction needs to be more nuanced. Because... Um, because, because, for example, in India, because of the power that Hindi films has on the psyche of, 
of people just because it has such a prime position in popular culture if you are going if if there are depictions of uh, women for example which are just disrespectful and which may have real life implications on how women are treated then i don't see how you can get away from saying that this 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 can't be shown and it's interesting because that really clashes with um the the the, the, the more liberal sense that you know everybody should have their own freedom of expression and once you start telling people what they can say and not say uh, that's a very slippery slope indeed but i think there has to be some some middle ground i don't know what that is i don't have an answer um but i don't think either way is the right way either either extreme doesn't seem the right way to me at least in the indian context right there's got there's got to be some middle ground but and that's where the this idea of dialogue and and back and forth and and um i think exposure to to the 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 people that would have the more liberal ideal you as you say of no censorship should be exposed to the sorts of things that are being censored as as you were i think that would be a very eye opening um kind of experience for them uh, but i i i really i'm really interested in what you say about about the the way that um films and cinema can uh, can can really affect the psyche i think you said uh, and it's interesting that that certain representations can sort of um inscribe and legitimize behavior and i think that came out recently in a very interesting court case where where a guy said that bollywood films had taught him to sort of treat women in a certain way and his behavior i think it was a stalking case was was oh really uh, i didn't i didn't hear of that tell tell me about it Oh, that's 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 the little I know about it. Uh, it it was a case of 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 a, a guy stalking a, a, a woman. Um, uh, he was uh, he it went to court, and he said uh, I was taught. I uh, you know I I learned this behaviour from watching uh, films, uh, Bollywood films, um, and uh, and it might have been a film in particular. I'm gonna it's I've just popped into my head very sort of a uh, gray recollection of of discussing it with a few friends um here in Fiji i shall have to mm. get more concrete information for you and send it over to you which i will do post interview okay <laughs> that is interesting but it's uh, it's interesting but also not surprising because in a way if you if for if that is your main diet of of visual culture which it is for most indians it also teaches people how how to be like i i was i was wondering um a while ago where did i get my moral code from because nobody sits you down and tells you this is right and this is wrong and stealing is bad and being nice to people is 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 good you get it from the stories that we are told you get it from the books and the films and the songs and you root for the good guys you're told who to root for and you're told who to be against and that's where you get your sort of moral code from and your and how how to live your own life now if i'm watching a diet of films let's say i'm in uh, living in the 60s as a woman and i'm watching the romances of the 60s that would tell me very specifically about what a good woman should live like and what sh- what choices she should make and what she should tolerate really from from the men in her life um and if you read read 
it's it's much easier with hindsight to see that um, oh these '60s films or these '50s films have such an outdated uh, way of dealing with um, relations between men and women or how, how what a good woman or, or should uh, live, and it's it's much less easy to see that in one way or the other the exact same code is being perpetrated now, even though it looks different. Very often it is the same. It's harder to see that, but the 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 dangers if you like are very much there because these are films and stories which are telling you how to be and how how it's okay for men to perceive you there are very many progressive films now as well but if if you like the hardcore of hindi film which remains the same it hasn't changed all that much unfortunately that it's okay for men to view you as an object of desire and full stop there's no more to you than that it's still easy to be swayed i feel if you if if one were to watch a lot of that yeah yeah absolutely um and it's it's been a fascinating part of of discussions we've had before about sort of feminist film theory and uh, the prioritization of male subjectivity that being the subject of so many stories and narratives women therefore relegated to the object in, in that in that binary dynamic and and how interesting uh contemporary subversive films uh kind of play with that i was as you as you were talking then my mind sort of was cast back to sort of hollywood films of the of the 50s and 60s that that also subverted that idea and i was thinking in particular of the of the films of douglas sirk who was known as a sort of um, a, a, a maker of weepies or the women's film or the melodrama. But when you look very closely at his his films, they're, they're actually very, very subversive and attempt to empower women with it through, through the, the structure of the story and through the representations of the, the constrictions and confinement of society. Um, so yeah, that, that that's very interesting. But of course, uh, as you say, the, there is a, a climate that dictates that, that most films and the structure and shape of most stories at any particular given time will reinforce uh, certain ideas. Uh, and in terms of gender, the, the 50s and 60s was, uh, was a time of uh, the patriarchy in full flow, I would say, in, in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Yes, as in India, for sure. Uh, so you had a, you is it, we've we've got a little bit away from from Sholay there, but but yes, um, we I be- did. <laughs> that it was all fascinating stuff. Um, I believe you had uh, a second physical choice. Yes, the second one is from my favorite um, director at the moment. Um, she is her name is Zoya Akhtar. She makes the most amazing films, and she is. Um, it's quite rare to be a woman director in in the Hindi film industry. Situation is much better now, but it's still quite rare. And and she's made this wonderful film called Zindagi Na Milegi Dobara, which translates as "You Only Live Once." Did you see it by any chance? I, I didn't, and I've not heard of it either. So um, I'm definitely going to hunt it down. It's oh. it's on Netflix. I would highly recommend it. It's um, very contemporary, very snappy storytelling which is what i love about her multi-layered she usually works with an ensemble cast which i love uh, all very well-known faces excellent actors um and her her story is always wonderful so this story is about um a group of three friends uh, who've known each other who've been best friends since school 
and they are all at different um, crisis points in their life, which comes out not all at once, but it, it comes out through the film. And uh, one of them is about to get married. And so for his um, pre-marriage celebration, he wants to go with his two buddies on a road trip through Spain. So that's what they do. And like any good buddy road trip, all kinds of backstories and developments come out during the the trip. And um, the structure of the trip is interesting because the idea is that each of them will choose one adventure spot, which is a, kept a secret from the other two till it's time to do it. And they all have to do it. And each of the adventure spots somehow taps into some kind of worst fear of each of them. And that, so that's very interesting. So you have this very physical aspect of the trip, which is the actual driving and sometimes camping out and, and the actual adventure sport, which, but which then taps into this amazing emotional seam uh, running through all their lives. That sounds, I'm, I'm, very, I'm intrigued by that, definitely. Uh, I love sort of um, uh, sort of new spins on, on road movies. I, I've, I've recently discovered, well, I've always known about um, an, an Iranian director called Abbas Kiarostami. Uh, I heard about him in the 90s and what an amazing kind of poetic filmmaker he was. And I've recently started watching his films because they're on Mubi, which is a site that I have. And one of them is, a, is a, this incredible Road, you would call it a road movie technically called Taste of Cherry. I don't know if you've seen it, but no. it's like, like no road movie I've ever seen before. So I, I am interested to add You Only Live Once to that list of uh, fascinating spins on the road movie. Um, so thanks for that recommendation. Writing that down, Taste of Cherry. Mm, yes, yeah, a film from the 90s. Um, and it's, uh, it's about uh, a guy in Iran who uh, he wants to commit suicide you find this out fairly early on and he's driving around trying to driving around the, the mountains um, uh, trying to find people to, to help him kill himself in a, in, a, in a country and a culture where it's illegal um, but it, it, it's so simple and it's so beautiful the rendered and so yeah it's like nothing I've ever seen before um, and, and each of the people he meets along the way kind of have different levels of, um, have different reactions to his request, shall we say. Uh, and it's fascinatingly telling how it goes on. So yeah, highly recommended. Okay, that sounds like a fascinating premise. Driving yeah. around trying to find somebody to get rid of you. <laughs> yeah, basically. I won't say anything more than that, but yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> highly recommended. Um, we'll have to come back to each other, uh, maybe have another one of these discussions where we watch each other's recommendations and <laughs> come back. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, let's move on now to um, your uh, emotional choice, I think. Well, what, what have you selected for that? So I selected Amar Akbar Anthony, which is um, from the mid-70s. And um, it is what we call a pot boiler of a film, which has everything in it. Every possible masala in your kitchen cabinet is thrown inside. And the result is um, quite extraordinary. Um, I'm actually, it really is. I'm amazed that you, you watched it and sat through it. I was very hesitant recommending it to you. I almost told you maybe don't watch this now because um, I know you're new to Hindi films. And this was really pushing you in at the deep end, quite literally. 
some some and and yet somehow it it's uh, it kind of flipped a switch in me. You know, it was it was okay. so extreme in in that sense, and it and it wanted to throw everything in. I w- and I was uh, recounting to someone how the first ten minutes are like three kind of feature films all thrown into one. I recounted everything that happened in those first ten minutes before. <laughs> Before the, yes. the blood, the blood transfusion scene, essentially, yes. where yes. you know, and it's like that—that's a film in itself. Uh, and I thought maybe it would settle down after that, but no, it it really just keeps going at that pace for three hours, which is incredible. I, I read a review that said it, it had a plot that would give Shakespeare a migraine, um, <laughs> but I I I, I like the <laughs> idea that it's kind of got everything in it, you know. It's like it's like it's got ev- like elements from every single Shakespeare play ever, and it's all in there, and and uh, also I've I have been singing the the song from the the, the final song uh, uh, Amar Akbar Anthony Amar yeah. Akbar and uh, my name is Anthony Gonzalez. The both of those tunes are two of the best songs I think I've heard in my my brief foray into Hindi. Uh, films and masala films so sorry that was my that's my response um your fears were unfounded it, it i actually loved it so uh, I'm, I'm so glad you liked it it's it's this film is this film is what um in in hindi film audience lingo is we call paisa vasool film which means a film which gives you your money's worth because you're paying good money for the ticket and you want every every paisa in that to be worth it and this is that kind of film because it rings every possible emotion out of you um and and when you come out it's it as you said each each uh, five minutes of the film could be a film in itself because there's so much packed in there so th- it, this kind of film when you come out of it it feels like you've lived several lifetimes <laughs> and it's going to take you some time to process this and i love that because that's my money's worth that's what film is all about for me so um why did i put it in the emotional category i think of course it's the whole film is very emotional because it's um it's about a mother who gets separated from her three sons the, the mother the the entire family is uh, ripped apart basically so the three sons the mother and father they all believe that everybody else is dead they have no idea um and then through various twists and turns and outrageous coincidences they they sort of come together again at the end um so there's that whole emotional thing of of a family being ripped apart but for me the the main emotion which uh, rings true for me is in its idea of a secular india because the the main point of the story is that each son is brought up by somebody from a different religion and the name reflects that so amar is brought up by a hindu police officer akbar is brought up by a muslim tailor and anthony is brought up by a a, a priest in a church and how all these um men grow up with essentially the same moral code despite being from different religions and how they come together as initially as friends without realizing that they are brothers and in the end they're all fighting the same bad guy so it was um it's it's a it's a story which almost has the quality of a fable 
rather than uh, I, I mean because of all these uh, twists and turns and coincidences and lost identities and then it all comes right in the end where the the, the metaphor is is that the nation itself is at stake if these three identities don't come together and act as one and yet remain uniquely different because through the film you can see that each of the three brothers has their own cultural identity depending on their religion and yet it is essential that they all come together and save their mother save their father beat up the bad guys and win the day so this is such a sincere depiction of the an idea of india which is largely lost today because um this is very much an an idea from the 70s 80s it's what we grew up with that this is what our country should be like we should all celebrate our differences and yet come together as as one because we are one it's not a question of coming together but we are one and that is reflected in this film because in the end these three um men find out that they are actually one family it's a revelation right yeah and so that just i mean that 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 was uh, i think the thing that really kind of pushed the film into a, into a new category for me that um even uh you know as as someone with a with a limited understanding of of indian culture and history this subtext really kind of came through for me so as well as having so many generic generic elements and giving me my money's worth as you say there was this very very interesting subtextual thing going on that kind of carried me through the film from from a very early point uh, all the way to the end um so so yeah i, I really enjoyed that I, 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 and it's a great it, it's it's a great message uh for, for any country or any culture isn't it that you know we are, there is more that unites us than divides us that kind of um that kind of idea um exactly so, yeah yeah I, I, and i think that this film wouldn't get made today just because people are so quick to take offense now that the every scene you would have people finding something wrong with it today just because of the social media environment we are in and people are constantly trying to get um find these got you moments you know i've got you there i've got you there i've got you there this is where you are wrong and this is where i'm right this film is uh, it would not get made today simply because constantly there would be people taking offense at this that or the other So that also makes it quite emotional for me because it's it really is an era gone by and I don't know whether it would come back. Yeah, that that's interesting. That's another kind of fascinating uh aspect to to this to to film generally. Uh the connection that we have to movies that we we don't think would be made made today. Malcolm in a previous um discussion with me this talks about a film called happiness that it came out in the in the sort of mid 90s that we weren't even sure would be would be made today so that demonstrates how quickly society can and will change and and the, the acceptance of certain representations will change and like you say today there's 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 a very little room for um kind of uh understanding a, a, a of other people's perspectives if if it if it offends me the hypothetical me who is the center of the universe of course in this social media kind of dominated world then uh, then it should not be because i don't like it yeah yes unfortunately that's where we're at 
Um, but but like I said, I I, I love the movie, uh, and for me, it demonstrate it, it. It's another film, and you actually used this phrase yourself a, a minute ago about a family being ripped apart, and this is something that I've noticed a lot of your selections are about. Um, the idea of um, some sort of traumatic separation of family members. Um, and I wondered if that was, uh, was just something that reminded, reminds you of, of, of perhaps the early film memories or if that's something, uh, something else that's quite personal to you or if it's, mm. it's just a, story, a storytelling trope which, which is, is central to so many uh, kind of narratives and so many different cultures, perhaps that's just it. I think it's it's more of a cultural trope. I think it's a very common basis for storytelling in, in Hindi films. Maybe because the family is such a central unit in in Indian life that ripping it apart is like um, the one of the worst things that could happen. And then, of course, everybody is rooting for the family to get back together. I think it's just that, that it's it's a common... It's a common trope, culturally. Right. Yeah, yeah. It is It is the most important kind of uh, uh, signifier of unity, right? The family. So, uh, and that's such a, such a standard thing to, to disrupt that unity or to have some sort of disequilibrium is, uh, is the, the, a cornerstone of, of not, let's not say all, but the vast majority of narratives and story shapes. Um, okay, so moving on to the uh, intellectual choice, what what have you got for us there? So for intellectual, um, this I really had to think because, as I said earlier, films are all about entertainment for me, and I really don't mind whether they're intellectual or not, as long as they entertain me. So um, in the end, I chose Interstellar, um, which is which really made me think. It, had me thinking for a long time after I watched it and I watched why did I watch it in the first place it was because I like science fiction Um, I'm perfectly happy to have aliens and monsters invading the earth I find that all very entertaining so I wondered I think when I started watching it I thought "Hmm, maybe some aliens are going to show up which is always great Okay, so basically, yeah, I'm happy to have to watch aliens and I usually choose science fiction films because I like to watch aliens and I'm fascinated with this this uh, whole thing. Um, and so that's probably why I chose to watch it in the first place. And the other reason is that I, I choose films because of the star power. This seems superficial, but it's very important to me. You know, I like I like to have my my Hollywood stars and and all the glamour. I, I like the entertainment that they feed me. You know, I'm mm. like a hungry child. I, I like the glamour <laughs> and the star power on screen. Um, that's so much a part of my, the essentials of my movie going experience. And so I chose it because it, I like the stars in it. I like Anne Hathaway and I like Matthew McConaughey. And, but having watched it, um, I had, there were various points in the film where my stomach was just clenching in anticipation of what was going to happen next. Um, and when the film finished, I was quite bewildered because in the first watching, I didn't really understand what had happened. But it was a very, it was not the kind of confusion which is frustrating, where I think 
you know, that was a waste of time. I didn't understand the film in the, it wasn't that kind of, it was, it was a, a confusion, which was intriguing because I thought that there's something here. There's a little puzzle in here, which I haven't gotten. And it was done in a very clever way. And, uh, very intelligently done and which demanded that I go back and watch it again, which I did. And um, I think it was only the third time that I watched it that I really understood what was going on. And the third time I watched it with subtitles. And that helped a lot because there's so much of the technical jargon going on, which one loses track of without the subtitles. Um, and I thought it was so clever and without losing any of the entertainment value, it, it raised all kinds of questions about humanity's future on earth, about climate change, um, about about what one can do. What is the answer really to a deteriorating landscape? And I think what I liked about it is that it doesn't claim to have definitive answers. The answer that it comes to is still very much open for questioning. Is it really wise? Is it the wisest use of resources to go looking for other planets to live on? Or should we be concentrating on what's going on here? Because once they are up in space looking for another planet, um, there's a very big lie, a very big falsehood that is revealed to them once they are up there, which throws everything into question. Even though there is, they find some sort of success at the end, the whole thing is still a question mark at the end for me. It's, it's still up for discussion. I don't know how much of the story one is supposed to give away now during our discussion, because it would spoil the film, wouldn't it? For we, it, it, it would give some spoilers, but I think we can, we can talk. We can talk... Um... Uh, uh, yeah, we can, we can give some spoilers. Uh, this was a huge okay. movie event, and I think that Christopher Nolan is one of those directors. He's such an event director that I think the vast majority of listeners would would have seen this film and would be interested in your interpretations of certain aspects. So so go for it. Okay, so after I watched the film, I looked up a little bit of information about it, and I was very fascinated to uh, learn that one of the uh, uh, at the main advisor of the film, and I think he was even one of the producers of the film, he was an astrophysicist, and that all the imaginative leaps that are taken in the film have a scientific basis. It's not just as if anything can happen. So it's not a fantasy scenario in that sense. Um, they, they did various scientific modeling, and um, there was one little bit of trivia I read where um, it said that the astrophysicist, Dr. Kip. In fact, one of the robots is named after him in the film. Kip is Dr. Kip. He spent two weeks trying to talk uh, Christopher Nolan out of the notion that um, humans could travel faster than light. Apparently, the director wanted to have an element in the story where the humans are traveling faster than light. And it took two weeks for this astrophysicist, astrophysicist to convince him that this is simply not possible. And so it wasn't there in the film. I liked this part of it. I liked that the uh, all the imaginative leaps had a basis in science. Um, and I liked this. Uh, playing around with time is something that has always fascinated me, whether it's something very complicated, like what happens in Interstellar, or even something which is much easier to understand, such as what happens in the Harry Potter films, you know, with the time turner. And they go back and change uh, the events of the day just by using a time turner. I, you'll have to forgive me, but I don't know what a time turner is. I've, I, <laughs> I'm not a big Harry Potter 
Uh, oh, you're not a so, Harry so, Potter so they, fan. Okay. They, they, they use it to go back in time and change things, I'm, I'm gathering yes. from what you said. Okay. Yes. And, and they, they save the day by changing a few things here and there. So the, the, the reference point for me would be more, would be back to the future. That, that's a, that's oh, yes. an understanding of, of that sort of time travel. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I loved Back to the Future as well. This also I found very, very clever and very convincing. And so that was, again, the thing that uh, attracted me about Interstellar. The fact that I, I still don't know whether I understand the whole thing. But the, the, the idea that um, everything is happening all at the same time. Because at the end, when he goes into this strange grid... He drops out of the wormhole or whatever it is and drops into this grid and then he can see back into what his daughter is doing. But she seems to be doing everything all at the same time and he can control his messages to her accordingly. I don't get that, but I don't mind. I, I don't <laughs> mind not getting it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's still convincing to me. It's, a, it's intelligently done and it respects the viewer. Definitely. And I think that's one of my favorite things about it. And, and films like that, films that are speculative and that, that open up questions without answering them are wonderful. Um, and I like that uh, this film, like you said, deals with time, which is a fascinating subject matter for, for film and cinema to take because of how... It's a mechanical recreation and manipulation of space and time itself as a medium. That's always something that fascinates me. And this film is spectacular at demonstrating that, but with a real emotional core, like you said. Uh, and I love that idea of love transcending kind of space and time almost. That's a, that's a big part of this film. And I think that we don't, under, even kind of mathematicians and theoretical physicists and astrophysicists, really one of the first things they admit about time is that that we don't really understand how it works that that we that human beings experience a weird that whatever it's called time's arrow the idea that we're constantly in the now and we're moving towards a from order via entropy to disorder and that is not how time is because time is like the tesseract at the end um, that Matthew McConaughey finds himself in. That is more. That that is how time is. It's it's kind of everywhere and and every time, but we don't experience it that way. That the nature of our of our understanding of time is rooted in that in in that kind of linear that linearity. I, again, I'm speaking as as someone who knows about films rather than physics or math, so that might have just sounded like nonsense. But but yeah, that that that's one of the things I really really love about this film. Yes, and I like the way it played around with um, a, a few of the uh, mysteries of time. Uh, one of the most powerful moments in the film for me was when um, there's one astronaut back on the spaceship and the others go down to explore this planet. And they know in advance that every, I don't know what, every minute on this planet is going to be six months or one year on Earth, Earth mm. time. So they have to be as quick as possible because a lot of time will have elapsed by the time they get back. And they land down on this planet, um, which was a very scary moment for me because it's just water. Only water on the planet. And I expected some kind of sea monsters to arrive at any moment, but nothing happened. It was just the water. It was a barren wasteland otherwise. And there's this um, two frightening moments in that uh, whole episode is when they say... Um, they, they start exploring, walking around in knee-deep water, and they say there's uh, mountains in the distance. 
and sudden, some somebody suddenly realizes that's not a mountain, that's a wave. It's coming towards us. I thought this was terrifying, terrifying and an amazing moment. And it was a very slow wave because the gravity was different on, on the island, on, on the planet. And because of that wave, everything goes wrong. And they spend a lot more time on the planet than, than they anticipated because they get stuck for, I don't know, an hour or two hours or something. And when they finally get back to their spaceship, 27 years have passed. I thought this was just amazing and terrifying and um, raised so many questions about the nature of time. And it was really a gut-wrenching moment when he realizes that his children, who were 10 years old or 13 years old when he left, they, they were now the same age as him, just because he'd been on this planet for two hours. It's, it's an incredible an incredible moment, you know, when he's watching those videos and his his son kind of is aging and his daughter refuses to to be a part of it. It's and yeah. and, and Matthew McConaughey, who I has gone through in maybe the last ten years now. I forget when when what what was was popularly known as the McConaissance when he went from being a sort of a heartthrob and a rom com star into a real amazing heavyweight actor with films like Mud and Dallas Buyers Club and The Lincoln Lawyer all came out at once. Uh, he's uh, yeah, I, he's fantastic in in that scene and it gets me every time, brings a tear to my eye uh, every time. Yeah, and it, and it's because yeah. of that that. That notion of time as well, that notion of of, of missing out, which is f- for me such a huge part of the uh, of the human condition. You know, the idea of of missing things um, or things happening without you is kind of maybe a self centered way of looking at things. But it's something that really kind of is very evocative when it happens in films, when people are reunited with people that yes. they've not seen for a long time, which is a big part, again, of some of, of uh, some of your other choices. Yeah, I was just thinking, I, this is again about a family being ripped apart, though I didn't think of this film as being that, but it's just come to me now. Uh, yeah, it, it's in there, in, in the background, which uh, yeah. as a sort of thread through through your choices, which I did find interesting. That um, is interesting. I'd have to go back and, and um, question why that is so. Mm. Um yeah, I mean that we could we could talk for for hours. I, I'm sure about this film. Um, I, I just want to go back to uh, there's two two interesting things that you mentioned. One one was that the the film has an aspect and an element of addressing censorship. I think when he's in the meeting with the school teachers and they say that you're teaching you're teaching your daughter that the moon landings happened when we all know now that they were faked for for this and that geopolitical kind of reason which i thought yeah. was very interesting and and also your love of stars and how and what an attraction they are to certain movies um i like that they can represent they can have like ideological or emotional impact on stories and that's something that we don't often appreciate enough we look at the director and the writer, for example, uh, without acknowledging the power that stars have. Yeah, I'm, I'm the opposite. I just look at the stars. I don't think too much about who's directed or written it, hmm. um, it with the exception of Zoya Akhtar. I, I, I realized I liked her story so much that I'm looking out actively for her next production. But apart from that, no. And I'm going to watch uh, You Only Live Once. Yes, you must. By the way, I'm um, speaking of uh, film directors. Since we are talking about Amar Akbar Anthony, the director is Manmohan Desai, and he was very, very well known in the 70s for making this kind of cinema. But a very interesting thing is that he used to have like he was 
well known for having about three or four films filming simultaneously. So he would have like four sets and he would be racing from one set to another, leaving people to get on with it on each set. And he would be directing like three, four films simultaneously. Um, and that is impressive. But all his films had this a, a similar content in, in a way. And yet they were very different. They were not repetitive. But he had certain stars he worked with, certain stories he worked with, and they all worked very well. Uh, do, do his films always have that chaotic air to them? Would that be would that be something that's consistent and perhaps part of the production process, maybe leaking into the the, the maybe the... <laughs> maybe I can I can just see that his his I'm imagining that most of his stories came to life while editing. I would assume if that was his filmmaking process. Right. But he right. definitely relied heavily, heavily on star power. That was a mainstay of his his productions. Cool. Okay, fascinating stuff. Uh, well, we, we are we are coming to the end of our discussion, which has been um, enlightening and educational, as well as great fun. Um, we've we've tapped into some areas that. Uh, that are completely new to, to the to the podcast series, which I love. I w- was beginning to worry a little bit that these discussions might get repetitive after a while. But everyone, everyone picks different films. Everyone has different insights, and 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 I've loved what we've discussed today. Um, I'd like to just finish up though by asking um, what. Uh, what it is that you don't see enough of in films at the moment? What you would like to see more of? Um, I'd love to see more films which are mounted on a really spectacular scale, like Lord of the Rings or The Last Emperor. Uh, I love the... I think films are meant to be watched on a big screen. It's watching it on at home on a TV or on the laptop on, on Netflix is a very poor second. And it takes away a great deal, I think, from many of these films when we see them at home rather than on the big screen as they were meant to be seen. And so I like that big, big screen, big screen spectacular. I also like films which are about um, creators, like behind the scenes films about writers, artists, filmmakers. Um, I have some uh, films like uh, in my mind, like uh, Miss Potter or uh, Finding Neverland. I really like seeing films about authors being a writer myself. I like to see the creative processes and the creative lives behind some of these real life people. Um, and um, yeah, I guess musicals. And apart from what kind of films I would like to see is how how we see films, which is a huge loss. Uh, what is a huge loss for me is um, the the uh, extinction of single screen cinemas in India um, and the rise of multiplexes. I think this has completely changed the way we go to see films and how we perceive films, how we experience them. Um, because when I was uh, growing up, we had single screen theaters which were um, which had seating for 1,000 or 1,200 people. These enormous, enormous, um, uh, iconic uh, theaters uh, in, in Bombay with um, names like Eros and Metro. And going to these places was an event. It was a, it was a real outing. Um, so going to the movies was quite different from seeing a movie at home. 
and to experience, especially if you're talking about these very highly emotionally charged films like Amar Akbar Anthony or any of these Hindi films, to see them with 1,000 other people and to laugh and cry and cheer and clap at the same time is a different experience altogether. It's a different experience of the movie. Um, I'll give you two examples. When in, in the late 90s, there was a film called uh, Rangila, which means colorful. Just a, a fun, playful film, which was such a huge hit that when I, by the time I went to see it, it was already an enormous hit. And I went to Eros to see it. And um, the owner of the cinema had put uh, disco lights in the cinema to celebrate the fact that this film was so amazing and that it was such an amazing hit. So before the movie started, you had these disco lights and strobe lights going all over the 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 film the cinema the cinema and then the film started so it really gave it a sense of occasion there was another film again in the 90s called hum aapke hai kaun at liberty theater it was it ran for months on end and the theater made so much money on the film that they installed electric lights around the screen and you can imagine the effect because it was a giant screen catering for 1,200 people. And every time a song came on and there were like, I don't know, 15 songs in the film. It was a very long film. They, the lights started flashing and blinking. So it was like attending a party in both these cases. And sometimes people cheer, they whistle, they get up, they start dancing in the middle of a song. So that whole mode of going to see a film and experiencing it, that is dying out. This I find, I, I wish that would come back along yeah. with these big screen spectaculars. That's, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I, I agree 100%. Um, I love, I, I miss the idea of, of movies as events. Uh, and I love the communal experience of watching, watching films. So I, I, I can't uh, agree with you more on that. Um, what is fascinating to me is this idea that we that we kind of just talking about maybe coming out again the idea of fragmentation or things falling apart and then unity and things coming back together which we've kind of talked about as a theme that runs through some of your film choices and now it's a sort of a lament of yours that the, the cinematic experience itself is fragmenting in a sense and you would like to see it come back together for these huge events <laughs> Absolutely. Very, very good observation. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I, I try. Um, I, another, another thing that, that, I, that I'm fascinated about is that, um, that there are these event directors out there. So we, we've talked a lot about Nolan, but we also mentioned Tarantino. And these are directors who have so much pull that they almost create these event movies when they do release films, which is so that's the that's the closest we get, I think, these days to to to, to that um, huge coming together and, and culturally and communally to watch one thing all at the same time. Yeah. Yes. Fragmentation and coming together. Having said that, this fragmentation into Netflix has opened up uh, amazing uh, spaces for Indian filmmakers, which are um, not constrained by censorship. So the fragmentation has this amazing side effect as well. Right. So it allows for more kind of um, diversity um, and to, to, to go places which, uh, which the mainstream doesn't necessarily allow. That was, that was something that, that I was thinking. Um, but yeah, I, I'm glad that you, that you mentioned it. Um, yep. Okay. Well, uh, I think that it's about time we wrap up. Uh, I know you have to get your headphones 
back to your <laughs> to your partner. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and this has been the the earliest the earliest morning recording that I've done so far. Uh, I was worried that I might be a bit sleepy, but it's been brilliant. It's been engaging and and wonderful, and I've loved it. Thank you very much for for offering to join me. Thanks. Thanks for asking me. This has been really fun. That was a, a wonderful, fascinating, intriguing, and educational discussion. Um, thank you so much, uh, and uh, I, I hope to speak to you soon uh, and maybe go to a, to to a big screen film screening at Damodar, where they do have a very very big screen. I don't know if you've been in the VX at Damodar City. I haven't actually. I haven't been to the big screen. It will really take you back. I think it must be at least a thousand seater. Uh, so really? Yeah, okay. yeah, it's huge um, and many, okay. many, many seats. Good. So um, that that that's a date. That's a date post lockdown. Wonderful. I look forward to it. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.